electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, the AI arms race. We're going to tell you what's driving tech's latest buzzword obsession. And then later, this exclusive with the CEO of Arm ahead of that that coming IPO, plus a read-through on SoftBank this week. Later on, the future of television. The biggest media insiders in the industry predict the next three years for TV. But, John, you definitely have the lead today. Yeah, yeah, Carl. uh, I'm here live at Microsoft headquarters in Redmond, Washington, for what's kind of a last-minute press event. This is about artificial intelligence. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman tweeted a photo of himself with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, and all the buzz is about ChatGPT. Microsoft's multi-billion dollar investment in that company comes as they've pushed hard on AI being the next great accelerator for their software business. I'm going to be speaking to Satya Nadella live on CNBC this afternoon, late morning Pacific. The question now is, how much of a first mover advantage does Microsoft have with this open AI partnership? I've recently spoken with the CEOs of C3 AI, Forethought, and others about large language models and how those are improving their AI offerings. I also spoke with the CEO of Navan, uh, formerly TripActions. That's a late-stage business travel startup that's integrating ChatGPT to automate expense reports. Uh, that news out today. Google and Amazon aren't just sitting back, of course. They are making the case that they're running fast to erase Microsoft's advantage, D. But we're starting to see this AI story play out (laughs) in real time, in actual products, and perhaps in revenue generation. We haven't quite seen that in a significant way yet, but we're about to. Revenue generation may play out a little slower, but certainly the idea of this, the breakthroughs, is capturing imaginations. John, you said you're at kind of a last-minute press conference for Microsoft. Well, Google is going to have its own last-minute press conference tomorrow where we expect they're going to be talking about their AI products. Um, It's interesting. Google has called itself an AI company for years and years, but OpenAI has beat it to the punch, and that's what, you know, has led to this code red situation. I've got the reporter that's been breaking a lot of that news beside me who we're going to bring in in a moment. But it tells you that even a company this big is scrambling somewhat. Yes, they've been developing these products for years and years, uh, Carl, but ChatGPT has really captured the imagination and captured the mainstream. Today is going to be further evidence of that. Sam Altman with Satya Nadella in a picture kind of sums up the last few months, hasn't it? Uh, yes, he was not shy about that, that photo of him in the Della, John. You know, the market's been so jumpy uh, looking for the next big growth opportunity, secular growth opportunity in technology. Uh, look at some of the price action of other names like C3AI. We've talked about it last few days. I wonder whether or not Microsoft's going to say, guys, uh, get a hold of yourselves. We're working on this, but uh, baby steps. That's going to be an yeah. interesting uh, tonal effect today. Yes, I, that is a great They're point. They're not going to say baby uh, steps. They are not going to say baby steps. 
they are going to say full steam ahead, I expect, <laughs> um, and they're going to make the case uh, as they have been up to this point. We've heard Satya Nadella talking on these earnings calls and other places that they're ready to roll this out. And I think that's perhaps going to be the difference between some of these companies talking about AI and other companies mm-hmm. able to show offerings in products that others are able to build on top of. If this is a scale game, we're starting to hear that argument for some of these companies I've been talking to. How much can you feed into these models? How quickly to make mm-hmm. them smarter? Then who's got a great product that's out already? That's going to be a big part of this, D. Yeah, scale is going to be key. Some pointing to the fact that Bing doesn't have a lot, but of course we know that Microsoft and its suite of Office products has scale in the billions if this is really a licensing play here. Uh, so guys, we know that Microsoft is showing off their big investment today as we've been talking about the competition is certainly heating up. CNBC's Jennifer Elias, I just referred to her, reports that apart from Google's public announcement yesterday, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai is calling for all hands on deck to make sure that its own AI chatbot called Bard can compete with ChatGPT. Pichai was bullish on the company's latest earnings call. Have a listen. On the AI side, you know, it is it is a really exciting time. Uh, I think we've been investing for a while, and it's clear that uh, the market is ready. Uh, consumers are interested in trying out new experiences. Uh, I think I feel comfortable with all the investments we have made in making sure we can develop AI responsibly. And we'll, we'll be careful. We'll be launching uh, you know, we'll more as labs products in certain cases, uh, beta features in certain cases, uh, you know, and just slowly scaling up from there. Competition is coming from beyond the mega caps as well, of course. VCs are piling into startups, begging the question, is AI the next big thing or is it the latest buzzword or dare I say bubble? Joining us now, Kate Rooney and Jennifer Elias. Um, guys, so far, the last few months, um, as I've said, ChatGPT has just captured the buzz, the imagination, all things. But you can only really interact with it, get an invite, sign up with your phone number. Do you think this is the week that people start to use it in everyday life? We see it on the search page of Bing and maybe Google later this week. Yeah, well, right now it's not publicly available through Google, and it still has limitations with ChatGPT specifically. Sometimes you can't get on, sometimes the servers are overloaded, like people can't get on and ask it questions. But I think that this is like one more step to kind of magnify the popularity and draw all the eyes to the capabilities of like what you know, this type of conversation technology can do. Yeah, it'll be amazing to see two, you know, titans of tech really kind of trying to outdo each other this week. Uh, Kate Rooney, you've been covering the crypto, the block space space for years, and you've seen how a word, a buzzword, a technology can just captivate and everyone tries to jump on the bandwagon. What do investors have to be careful of when it comes to AI and you look at a company like C3AI with its ticker AI that's up 150% in the last month. There's a lot of cautionary tales from crypto, but it is really reminiscent of that hype cycle. If you look back to 2017, the big example was, remember, Long Island iced tea company that changed its name to Long Island Blockchain. It eventually got delisted, and you saw this just absolute frenzy to pile into anything related to blockchain or to crypto. And VCs that I'm talking to have started to see the same thing. They've said, okay, we've really pumped the brakes on crypto and blockchain, but you're uh, starting to see founders now send out pitch decks and just pretty much add AI. So they were the ones who originally were telling me, you know what, it feels like AI is the new blockchain. Also, if you look at Google trends, Google searches, I was looking at this yesterday, 
couldn't believe it. We feel like crypto and blockchain versus searches for AI. That tends to be a pretty good barometer right. for more retail interest, while the private markets tend to lag. Earnings calls too, by the way. Yes, Explosion absolutely. Of that term. Yeah, AI is not the new blockchain, though, in the sense that I'm talking to companies who are actually incorporating AI capabilities into their products in meaningful ways that they're able to demonstrate today. Uh, we've never seen that with blockchain. Yeah, sure, we've heard about kind of shipping products around and keeping track of things in the supply chain, but uh, that, that never manifested itself in a scaled way. And Jen, I wonder, over at Google, is your sense that even though they've been working on AI internally for their own products and purposes, they're ready to release the tools for others to build on top of that? Or is that sort of the blind spot where they've got a lot of work to do over the coming weeks to, uh, to show they have that capability? John, you nailed it right there. <laughs> like That is their weak spot. As they've grown bigger, it's been harder for them to actually ship products. And they may have the working technology, but um, the bureaucracy and other things that we have actually reported on over the last year has, I think, kept it from really delivering things that are very competitive. Also, we reported on an all-hands meeting in December that some of the executives said that they are really taking a lot of caution when it comes to releasing this technology. Um, they have a lot of responsibility. They have a ton of users. This is way more than, you know, the users of uh, OpenAI, for instance. I mean, we have people that use Gmail on a daily basis and all of these. So um, I think they actually have to be very cautious in terms of that. But they do have very good working technology. I got to look at some of the, you know, tests that they ran with BARD um, and their Lambda technology and testing it against ChatGPT. And so that is there. It's just a matter of whether they can really deliver this. Yeah, and that's something that Sundar Pichai has talked a lot about over the past week on the earnings call, his blog yesterday, balancing yeah. boldness with responsibility. Right. You know, I think investors trying to figure out, is that a crutch to give them a little bit more time? Or yeah, and I, it, these are real concerns at the same time. Right. That's the rallying cry behind, you know, we, let's try like the early yeah. Google days, this hackathon type of environment. So, yeah, I think they're going to try that more. Kate and Jen, thanks very much. Thanks. Talk to you guys again soon. Thanks, Steve. As this competition heats up among our mega caps, our next guest turns to the VC space, sees a lot of excitement, but is worried that some startup ideas may be just features rather than fully-fledged companies. Joining us this morning, 75 and Sunny co-founder, general partner, and former Zillow Group CEO, Spencer Raskoff. Spencer, great to have you. So everyone's buzzing about this, and uh, you know people who are building startups on it, and you know funds that are being raised around it. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. It's all anyone can talk about in tech. So their entire funds being raised on it, you know, .LA reported on March Capital with a new $650 million AI-focused fund here in LA. Um, you know, what we saw today or what we're seeing today from Microsoft and Baidu is what everyone sort of expected, which is everyone's going to have one of these. So Google's going to have one, <clears throat> Amazon's going to have one, Apple's going to have one, et cetera. And the startups that are being built on top of them are becoming verticalized. So I've been pitched probably 15 startups in the last couple of weeks that are trying to build real estate specific chatbots, for example, to create listing descriptions um, or uh, customer service chatbots. And these are good ideas, but the question really is, won't AI just be incorporated into existing software, like existing customer service uh, technology providers, rather than being built as a totally separate company? I think that's, um, you know, that, as you say, these are ideas that might be features, not companies, and that's what VCs are trying to sort through right now. So how do you, as, a, as someone who uh, looks at stocks, at least 
even publicly available stocks. How do you distill that? I mean, what, what, what looks attractive to you in the space in a way that's actionable? Well, I think cloud is going to be a decent comp here. Cloud is the better comp than crypto or Web3 for sure. And what I mean by that is there'll be a couple big providers of these huge data sets, just like there are a couple big cloud providers, and they will have a lot of revenue. And then the rest of the tech ecosystem, companies like TripActions, for example, that you talked about, or Picasso or Zillow, these companies are going to use AI in their services by sitting on top of somebody's models. Um, and there will be a small number, in my opinion, of dedicated startups that don't have their own models, but are verticalizing the use of, of generative AI into their particular verticals. Um, you know, TripActions is a perfect example where they're incorporating AI into their existing expense management program. And I'm sure there are dozens of startups out there trying to launch new expense management software just focused on generative AI. But here you have a legacy comp company like TripActions, which has already responded by bringing AI into their product. So that'll be the challenge for these, uh, these disruptors that are trying to use AI as their wedge into a space. And Spencer, I, I think it's important for investors to think about and to realize that there's not just one uh, approach to AI out there and one rules them all. It's kind of like cloud. There's software as a service, there's infrastructure, there's platform as a service. So yes, you have these conversational AI uh, capabilities, large language models, et cetera, but you also have companies that are working on industry-specific AI applications, right, that are able to mine through data, present it, and then when it's time to present that data, sometimes that's when your chat GPTs and your large language models come into play to, to help make sense of that. I mean, there are companies, aren't there, that are working in that vertical area, when it, whether it comes to defense or government, uh, intelligence, uh, et cetera, customer service you mentioned, where there's a possibility to capture quite a bit of mindshare. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the people that must be laughing about all this are the Ask Jeeves folks who 25 years ago had a search <laughs> engine, the whole point of which was to ask a question and then you would get an AI driven uh, response. And so, you know, this is what's new about this technology is that it's it's customer facing and it has struck a chord. You know, one of my side projects for the last many years has been a tech podcast for kids with my son called Dad, I Have a Question. And our <laughs> What is Chat GPT episode is our most popular episode by a mile. So <laughs> it's, it's gotten into the mainstream, you know, as quickly as the advent of the web browser in the mm -hmm. early 90s. That's how quickly this has become mainstream. But, but the technology has been around for a long time. Uh, we're just seeing the, the more consumer-facing aspects of yeah. it. So, so Zillow, for example, has used AI to improve its estimate for many, many years. Picasso has AI infused throughout its products. So the, the technologies here are not entirely new. What is new, and, and credit, full credit to, um, you know, to OpenAI, is they mm -hmm. rushed out a consumer-facing product, which captured imagination, and now Google and Baidu and everyone else is, is scrambling to mm -hmm. respond, as you point out. And, and made it mainstream. Spencer, everyone seems to agree here that the... The promise of generative AI is huge, but what about the less desirable use cases that, as we've seen in the evolution of technology, have been thought of maybe too late? I mean, look at social media as maybe a cautionary tale. We gave up all of our privacy and data just to try and put the genie back in the lamp later. Issues like plagiarism, IP theft, um, yeah. privacy. Well, and education. How are these going to play I, out? Exactly. Uh, yeah. 
and uh, you know, I, I'm I'm uh, on the board of of a of a high school here in Los Angeles, and we're spending a lot of time trying to figure out what to do about ChatGPT, right? I mean, kids are already writing papers using generative AI, and what impact will this have on education? And then you see public stocks like Chegg, for example, which are trying to uh, explain to the public markets that they won't be disrupted by it. So, again, like cloud it's gonna impact really everything in technology. Without cloud, there wouldn't be Netflix. Without cloud, there wouldn't be Spotify. And five years from now, we'll say, without generative AI, there wouldn't be, you know, perhaps Google, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, so it's gonna be a technology that's totally pervasive and consumers will experience it in, in some um, sort of obvious direct ways, like perhaps through a search engine, but more importantly and more um, ubiquitously, they will experience generative AI in lots of ways that they don't even understand, that they don't, uh, you know, they don't realize mm -hmm. that the recommended songs in Spotify are using AI models that are kind of behind the scenes. And same with cloud, where it's sort of just something that we as consumers don't really think about day to day. Right. Uh Spencer, we'll have you on another time to talk some uh, housing and mortgages, which is another fascinating story. Uh, but this is good radar on AI. Good to see you. Spencer Raskoff. Thank you for having me. And if you're looking for more public companies that have their foot in AI, uh, CNBC Pro put together a list of stocks in the sector uh, that Wall Street is leaning bullish on right now. Some of them include Berkshire Gray, uh, Soundtown AI, Luminar Technologies. You can get the whole list on CNBC slash ProD. And up next, SoftBank's Vision Fund takes a nearly $6 billion hit as new investments slow to a trickle, at least for them. So where's the next leg of growth? The firm is now focusing, or at least Masasan is focusing on the potential IPO of chip designer Arm. We'll speak to Arm's chief exec when Tech Check returns. We're just getting started. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Check out shares of SoftBank listed in Tokyo. They finished lower by 1% overnight after the company posted a quarterly investment loss of $5.5 billion. The company, led by Japanese billionaire Masasan, has been one of the most prolific tech investors of the last decade, riding the highs and the lows of the tech market, particularly over the last few years. Over the last four quarters, though, it's been consistent lows as it continues to lose billions on startups and its publicly listed companies. Matsusan is now taking a back seat, letting his lieutenants run the earnings 
earnings presser. Last night, they reassured investors that the balance sheet and portfolio was safe. They pointed out that net asset value is still higher than its share price. Masasan himself, guys, he is focused on one part of the company that they can monetize, and that is the ARM IPO, which they still hope to pull off by March of next year. Meantime, John, um, the company is cutting back on investments, slow to trickle for SoftBank, that is, just $300 million in two companies versus nearly $10 billion of investments in the quarter a year ago. Yeah, um, SoftBank's been sort of the pre-IPO version of Kathy Wood and ARC, right? And the problem is, as valuations in the private markets come down and the IPO window remains closed, it's really tough uh, to turn around that situation. Until the IPO window opens and maybe some of these things can come public, it's, it's sort of hard for them to turn that situation around. It depends, too, what they go public at. Remember that SoftBank is a late-stage investor, so if those valuations never come back up, and we've seen that for the likes of private companies like Uber and Lyft never reach their private valuations. So it'll be important for them to at least get some liquidity valuation. What they make from it, that's another question. Well, speaking of, let's talk more about uh, that with the CEO of Arm, perhaps a bright spot. This is a company that's got a known business. It's been public before and uh, chip designs that practically everybody uses. Um, joined now by the CEO of Arm, uh, Renee Haas. Renee, good to see you. You just uh, kind of reported earnings, not as a public company, but letting people know um, what's going on. Total revenue, $746 million, uh, up 28% year on year. But the inventory overhang in the chip business affecting you as well. How does it all net out? We had a really good quarter, John. We were very, very pleased with our results. Uh, our partner shipped a record 8 billion chips uh, in the quarter, which was uh, an all-time high. And I think that really speaks to the diversification we've had in our business over the last number of years. We were largely associated with smartphones uh, previously, but right now we've diversified greatly into the cloud, into automotive and IoT. So we've, we've really fared quite well. So uh, I, I hear a lot of the similar positioning from Qualcomm, which is diversifying into industrial IoT, manufacturing, automotive, not just uh, smartphones. That's still a big part of the business, though. And over uh, the past couple of decades, Arm has tended to be smart about doubling down on areas like graphics chips, on areas like servers, where you think you can have unique designs that make a difference. What are you focused on now for that kind of value add where you think you can get um, more revenue, more profit dollars? How much are you investing, for example, we've been talking a lot about it today, in AI? Well, the DNA of the company is really around uh, power efficiency. And if you think about how the company was born into smartphones, uh, that kind of sensibility really served us well. Fast forward into the data center and EVs, power efficiency becomes increasingly critical because more and more of these compute workloads demand more and more compute power. In the data center, you've got a fixed number of kilowatt hours and kilowatt space. You've got also in an EV a limited amount of energy, which really lends itself well to an efficient architecture, which is where we uh, where we fit in. So areas such as the cloud, uh, automotive are, are great for us. And, and now with these AI workloads that, that we've been talking about this morning, uh, it, it's even more opportunity. These large language models uh, require huge compute capabilities, which need to run on very power efficient architectures, which is what we do. 
Renee, good morning. It's Deirdre. Um, so ARM, of course, occupies a really unique space in the chip industry, but an up-and-comer that more folks are talking about is a company called Risk Five That helps also companies design their own chips. It's open source, though, unlike ARM, and that eliminates the need for licensing fees. Some argue that that makes it cheaper and faster. How are you thinking about that competition and making sure that they don't eventually eat your lunch, especially in some of the newer spaces that you want to diversify into? The, the real uh, strength of any computer architecture is the software investment. Um, you know, we, for example, in the cloud, we've been at it for now about 10 years or so. You know, finally, we have all the distribution models ready, all the software ready, and now ARM is in every major uh, data center in the planet. That took a long time. Uh, there's a huge software investment that's required with any architecture. There's been over 1.5 billion developer hours. We did some estimates, our team did, in terms of the investment on ARM. Uh, and we're going to keep investing there. That is really where all the, the energy needs to go in any new computer architecture. So I think we're, we're very well positioned there, and we'll continue to invest in the developer ecosystem. Renee, what are you doing with headcount and balancing uh, fueling growth, especially as you want to remain IPO ready with also controlling costs? Yeah, so as you know, as we've been talking about this morning, you know, particularly with these large language models, you know, ChatGPT, et cetera, et cetera, the need for compute is insatiable, and we need more and more engineers to uh, to fulfill those needs. So we are hiring. We're being very careful, as you said, as we're uh, preparing for an IPO. We are fully committed to making that happen uh, this year and 2023, and plans are well underway. So we need to balance that with, uh, with hiring and making sure that we're uh, able to capture the long-term opportunity, which we're most excited about. So we are hiring, but we're being very careful about it. Well, that's going to be a big public offering, and there are a lot of people, a lot of investors in the market looking forward uh, to seeing how that turns out. Uh, Renee Haas, looking forward to seeing you a lot more in 2023. Thank you so much. Still to come this morning, the Fed chair said to speak in about an hour. Will he walk back some of those dovish comments following Friday's blowout jobs number? And if so, what does that mean for markets? Meantime, keep a close eye on Pinterest uh, results, clawing back some of the sharp losses that we saw in after hours trading last night as we're back above 4,100. Don't go away. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. Pinterest shares initially fell almost 15% in after-hours trading following those results last night. Now trying to claw back some of that despite the revenue miss and this pretty weak forecast. Our Julia Borston has more on the quarter and what Pinterest has to say about the ad market, which we talked a bit about yesterday, JB. 
Well, that's right, Carl. Pinterest missing revenue expectations and also guiding to lower than expected revenue in the first quarter. CEO Bill Reddy saying that near term, everyone is experiencing softness in the ad market. But the stock did rebound off its lows on Bill Reddy, talking about cost cutting and a meaningful decline in growth of operating expenses. He also laid out the opportunity to compete with TikTok with short form video, which they're going to make shoppable. Gen Z is one of our fastest, is actually the fastest growing cohort for us. And we see that accelerating. And interestingly, a big part of that is our progress in short form video. Uh, so video is now more than 10% of the engagement on our platform. But in contrast to others, it's more than 30% of the revenue on our platform. Atlantic equities at the buy rating on the stock saying the company's push into video does appear to be yielding benefits and with the potential to increase the ad load, they believe that Ready deserves more time to reaccelerate Pinterest growth. But on the other hand, B of A with a neutral rating saying that Pinterest could be at more risk in an ad recession scenario, given its smaller scale than some of those rivals. Guys. Julia, thanks very much for that breakdown. After the break, Fed Chair Powell speaking next hour. Investors looking for any change in tone following Friday's very hot jobs report. Was it too hot for them to start slowing the pace of rate hikes? We'll ask. And Uber is on deck to report ahead of the bell. The stock surging 36% this year. Will the results justify the rally? We're back in two. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Contessa Brewer. In France, thousands of demonstrators are back on the streets protesting, raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. The legislation was introduced in France's parliament. President Macron says it's necessary to keep funding for one of the most generous pension systems in the world. Federal prosecutors have charged 23 people in Michigan with running Medicare fraud schemes that netted more than $60 million. The Justice Department alleges two groups billed Medicare for a variety of unnecessary medical services, many of which were never even provided. And a new survey indicates about one in five Americans plans to bet on the Super Bowl. That's more than 50 million people, a new record. They're expected to wager $16 billion, and that's roughly double last year's estimate. Big bets. John? Yeah, Contessa, thank you. Uh, this morning, meanwhile, Minneapolis Fred, Fed President Neil Kashkari telling our Steve Leisman explosive job growth is evidence that the central bank has more work to do. That is ahead from remarks from Fed Chair Jerome Powell in just over an hour. For more on how the market is thinking about another rate hike, let's bring in CNBC's senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Steve, uh, are we going to get any kind of a shift from at least what the markets interpreted as, as a more dovish Powell last week uh, after that huge jobs number? Yeah, so I think it's worth thinking about how dovish Powell really was last week. He did acknowledge that there had been disinflation, but I think there's a difference between a Fed chair acknowledging that the data is different and that data affecting policy. I don't think Powell shifted very much from his outlook on the terminal Fed funds rate being around five and an eighth, 5.13 percent. He did say there had been disinflation. It creates the risk that they do less, but it didn't really shift policy. And, and I have to sort of take that same framework and overlay it on today. I don't think Powell is ready to move off of this idea that they're going to hit above 5% by the end of the year. 
Um, I do think that it may increase the risk if this strong jobs numbers continue that they may do more. We had Kashkari this morning. He was saying he's going to 540, thinks that's the right number. But the big story here, John, is how the Fed, I'm sorry, how the market has moved towards the Fed. That gap between the Fed and the market, it had been 80 basis points. It's now just around 33 basis points. Right. So as that's come more in line, Steve, what do you expect from Fed Chair Powell if he perceives the market to have taken his comments last week as dovish? Does he overcorrect here? What's the risk for the market as they come more in line? You know, if we hadn't had that big jobs report and the stock market and the bond or the bond market hadn't gone up as much as it has in terms of yield, I would say he has some fixing to do. But I don't think he does. The market made that mm. big move. If you look at the the two year yield since that Wednesday meeting, you see it goes down, it goes flat, and it comes back up on the jobs market, and it's gone further up over the past. There it is right there. There's that, I don't know, it looks like sort of the cross-section of a, of a tanker right there. You're looking at it in the middle, and then it goes up to the right. It keeps going up. I'm, I don't know, but I suspect he might be happy with the tightening of financial right. conditions. The question is, does he want even more than he's gotten? Yeah, well, we'll see. All eyes are on that speech later today. Yeah, thanks, Steve Leisman. As we look ahead to that, how should you be positioned? Our next guest says, don't trust the tech bounce. We've seen this, these last few weeks. Joining us now, Annandale Capital founder and chairman George C. George, good morning to you. Um, I'm sure you just heard that discussion with Steve Leisman. If Fed Chair Powell doesn't have to do much fixing, as Leisman put it, um, and the rally has continued at the same time the bond yields have moved up. What could ruin this rally here? Hi, Deirdre. Well, there's so many things that could ruin the rally. The, the animal spirits are back. The art complex is moving up fast and furious, and everybody wants to go up and to the right. And what we hope is going to happen and what actually happens rarely align themselves. And, and does, does Chairman Powell really have to stop at a five to five and a quarter range, or could he go higher than that? Well, the market is is predicting he's going to stop there or even earlier than that. And he certainly doesn't have to if he doesn't like it, uh, jobs numbers and inflation creeping back. So I, I think that people who are putting on their animal spirits hats again, maybe a little premature, might want to take some risk off or hedge their bets a little bit. Okay, George, how do you judge the quality of this rally then? I know a lot has been made about some of the low quality, unprofitable names have seen a surge, but we also saw the mega cap tech companies um, post results that, yes, they weren't all that great, but it seems to be baked in because they've also regained their leadership this year. This market reminds me a lot more, Deidre, of uh, 2000 to 2002 than 2007 to 2009. I don't think the evaluations were as extreme now as they were back then. In fact, I think quantitatively you can make that as a, a certainty, but I do think we had a lot of false starts in that two and a half year period before we finally left that bear market behind. And I, I think this is probably a false start. Um, I think it's gonna take us more churning and more working out where multiples uh, settle down towards more where earnings growth is and earnings growth is slowing. And I think the multiples have still got some workout to do left. So going right back off to the races, I, I, I question that. I just don't think that's gonna hold. Yeah, George, that's curious. I mean, people have uh, talked about, you know, the fear about earnings revisions being uh, pretty tough, but there have been some high-profile cases of Spotify and Netflix and Meta where revisions went the other way. Uh, do you think that eventually does turn back, though, to the downside? I think it depends on the company, Carl. you got to go company-company uh, basis on a one-to-one -one analysis, and there's such a mixed batch of earnings we've been seeing. Some companies have surprised the upside that made a reaction was euphoric. It was really 
powerful and I'm glad I'm a stockholder, <laughs> but I'm also a stockholder of Amazon and it got absolutely drilled last week. And I, I hope it gets drilled a lot more so I buy a lot more, a lot lower, but it, it's it's very company specific. And that's, that's not a super healthy market. You want to see breadth. And right now we're seeing a lot of speculative tech breadth and, it, and among the blue chips, as Deirdre said as well, but I just don't think it's sustainable. I think we're going to have a lot of starting and stopping and a lot of chop. And I think a lot of young investors who didn't go through the Great Recession or the tech bubble bursting are not used to a market that doesn't just go up and to the right like we've seen for over a decade. And this is going to be a different period of time, I think. And I think active investors have got a leg up for the first time in a long mm -hmm. time. So then what do you do in this kind of environment, George? Do you sit on the sidelines and hold cash? If you're a long-term investor, though, and we talked a lot about the AI promise and how Microsoft and Alphabet are pushing further into this, um, do you look for some of those higher quality names or do you sit out of tech altogether? I really believe that time in the market is a complete fool's game. So I, I don't think you go to cash. I don't even think you go half to cash, but I do think you trim around the edges and I do think you take a barbell approach and have a nice exposure to value in international, which are still the delta between their their PE multiples and, and tech and growth is still gigantic. And you want some presence there and you want to hold really high quality tech, the companies you want to own for a long period of time. And when, when we get corrections, uh, reposition yourself and add to companies you really want to own and maybe even get into some more high flyers like NVIDIA and some of these stocks that have gotten hammered and now bounced back tremendously. You can probably wait for another correction before you get into some of the more highly priced stocks that are higher growers. Okay, we'll see how it all plays out. George C., thanks for being with us today. Talk to you soon. Ahead, as workers return to the office, they're also returning to the sky. We're gonna look at the return of business travel. We're back in two. Business travel is back, both traveling to close customer deals and build internal teams. In a Fort Knox update, I spoke with Ariel Cohen, the CEO of corporate travel platform Navan, formerly known as TripActions. He is seeing business travel rebound to pre-pandemic levels as executives want to close deals face-to-face. -face. What we are actually seeing is kind of the old kind of travel of salespeople, execs are traveling uh, for, to close deals. Uh, actually came back to the same place. In fact, as recession kind of started to get in, we actually see more of this travel. And I think that the reason is it's actually more important for customers to meet their number, for, for our customers to meet uh, their numbers before they report and so on. I also spoke with Brex co-CEO Enrique Dubugras, who says his company's proprietary spending data shows startups are saving on office space, but having to spend on travel, focusing more on team offsites. So we went from basically, hey, you know, the, you know, kind of road warrior, I'm going to go see 10 customers in New York. So like, why don't we do an offsite in Santa Monica or something like that? That's like a much bigger um, percent of uh, now uh, travel transactions compared to before. Um, to, to, to actually like look at the uh, actual data, um, you know, like startups had around 19% or 18% pre-pandemic um, of their total spend in travel. Now it's around 16%. So, Carl, Navan Trip Actions has 
probably more of a mix of larger companies, Brex, smaller startups. But the consistent message from both was business travel is back to near pre-pandemic levels, but just the tilt of it has gone a little bit more to traveling for internal reasons versus sales. But that sales need, for example, seeing customers, still important. Yeah, that, that's where you get your edge. I mean, uh, D, we were talking about Hertz this morning. We had Stephen Schur on uh, talking about a, lar- a large part of their transaction strength and yep. their pricing strength has been corporate. And uh, Hertz stock, I mean, you got, it's almost a six-month high today. Yeah, you still got to do those deals in person. John, I know that you're always interested in the results of Bill, formerly Bill.com. We had that CEO on yesterday. Painted a very different picture, though, and just in terms of spending, a lot of the small and medium-sized businesses that they have as customers are pulling back in a major way. Total payment volume is down. So I wonder if that corporate travel continues to be strong or it sees another leg down this year as companies try to cut costs in more places. Well, I'm not sure it's a totally different story. Uh, Brex in its report showed that later stage startups are actually trimming costs more. So they're spending less. Maybe they're hiring less, but they're also still spending on travel. Earlier stage companies uh, who maybe didn't hire up as much are still uh, growing spending or maintaining spending at a higher level. But that mix of spending has gone back to travel as people realize they can't sit at home uh, just on Teams and Zoom calls. Got to go out and meet people. Yeah, yeah. just wait till some of these leases start rolling over, John. It's, uh, that process is just beginning. Uh, coming up after the break, uh, industry insiders at Netflix, TikTok, and The Ringer, and our parent NBC Universal share their take on the future of legacy television and streaming. That's coming up next as the S&P's gone green right ahead of Powell. Will legacy TV be dead in three years? Should streamers consider a bundle? Is more consolidation coming for cable? Just a few of the questions that CNBC's Alex Sherman asked to over a dozen of media's biggest insiders, from Barry Diller to Jeff Zucker and Sarnoff, Jeff Bukas, all giving their best predictions on the future of television and which streamers stand to gain the most. Alex joins us today. Alex, this is amazing. Not just the names you got, but the candor that they gave you. I mean, Kevin Mayer on, on Legacy TV sounds like he's been talking to Iger. I mean, he, Kevin is on sort of the extreme end of things in terms of pushing the envelope uh, toward the death of Legacy TV. And maybe that's not all surprising. He was in charge of streaming at Disney. So certainly that's been his focus. And then if you remember, for a brief period of time, he was CEO of TikTok. So he's been thinking about maybe the future of media a little bit more than, say, some of the other legacy media executives that I spoke to that are really very much still in the world of linear TV. Um, But Kevin Mayer basically said, look, the death is coming and it's coming soon to legacy TV. Maybe it's even coming within the next three years where legacy TV becomes effectively dead. And almost everyone, at least in this country, is watching their TV through some sort of streaming or combination of streaming apps. Other people I spoke to said, look, legacy TV is definitely going to last. These things take many, many years. It will never really die. Even some people at the extreme said it will just kind of peter out. So depends on your perspective. Right. I guess even vinyl records uh, have, have some kind of a life among a certain audience these days. You know, even though the people you talk to come back to the handful of large players in streaming, the idea of a new bundle uh, doesn't get endorsed by everybody, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, About a mixed view on this one of the 18 or so people we spoke with in the story. 
some people said that it's just going to be too economically infeasible to get all of these streamers to come together to have some sort of bundle where, say, you'd buy Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, and a few others for a discounted price. Just because we're sort of too far down the road with how many subscribers are already uh, a, a, a viewing member of each of these services, it would be too difficult for Netflix to say, look, I want 40% of the economics because most of the people will be watching Netflix uh, uh, programming on this bundle. Or Disney says, I want 20%, whatever it may be. So that was sort of uh, at least, a, I would say, a slight majority view is that one of these larger bundles probably won't come together. But there were certainly people that said, look, maybe we're not going to get a full-on cable bundle, but we will at some point in the next couple years here get something that at least approximates a cable bundle. Maybe there's three or four or five of these services in there that you can buy all together, and you can view them all in one app experience. Right, which brings me to the last question. This idea, longer term, of a new standard in television. We obviously are talking about the metaverse in its early days. That kind of got addressed by some, right? Yeah, I think there was a general skepticism that the metaverse would kick in over the next three years, which is sort of the timeline I used here. But I think there's very little doubt that something's going to happen. I mean, when you have a company like Meta that's pouring in $10 billion or whatever the number is in order to build something, other companies are going to come along, and, and, and you can see the, the quote by Ann Sarnoff there, that I think there will be at least some progress toward a more interactive experience. Does that happen in the next three years? Majority opinion, no, it doesn't. It's probably five, seven, ten, even maybe even longer than that. But look, the groundwork is being laid, so the incremental steps toward having a metaverse, we may start to see some of that in the next three years. Uh, it's great work, and everybody should take a look, Alex. Our, our thanks to you. That's our Alex Sherman. And by the way, you can read the full piece online only on CNBC.com. John? After the break, the gig is up. A look ahead to Uber and Lyft getting ready to report earnings. Plus, don't miss my interview with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella from the company's AI-themed event. That's today at 2 p.m. Eastern. Stay with us. One more thing before we go, and let's take a look ahead to a few reports this week. Uh, we've got the gig economy companies up, Uber before the bell tomorrow. It is on a tear this year, up more than 35 percent so far. We'll see how a five-decade low for unemployment is impacting driver supply. You may remember Evercore, Goldman, Wells Fargo, Deutsche Bank, and B of A all naming Uber a top pick to start the year. And then we've got Lyft on Thursday, despite a 60 percent surge in 2023. The street not quite as bullish. Yesterday, Haskett said it was time to take some profits, concerned about rider demand. Guys, this is the start of unprofitable tech season. Uh, Uber is on track for losses of $10 billion in 2022. A lot of that has to do with its stakes in other unprofitable companies like SoftBank. But when it comes to these revenue estimates, analysts are expecting a 19% increase for Lyft, a 47% increase for Uber. That kind of tells you how each of those companies are going. Yeah, unit economics are important, though, Carl. Every unprofitable company is not a company without a future. Indeed. John, we cannot wait for you and Adela coming up in a couple of hours. It's going to be one of the highlights of the day as we await Powell not too long from now. And as we said, S&P pretty much just above the flat line. Time for the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.